Welcome back to We Muse Aloud, a podcast where anonymous voices share their thoughts on a theme within, within, with, shit. Listen, you may not be ready for this one, or maybe it's exactly what you need. This episode is about grief. Our three contributing voices all share stories of the loss of parents, and how they continue to process and live with that loss. If you've lost someone dear to you, you might find connection in this episode. If you haven't, this could be very informative in terms of helping you to understand the experience of friends who are grieving. It's common to not know what to do or say. Maybe this will help. As always, We Muse Aloud is best enjoyed with headphones for the full sonic experience. It's a longer episode than usual, because everything shared in its recording felt too important to omit. It certainly won't be easy to listen to, and the stories shared could be quite triggering. Take care. Episode 15 Grief Uh, So my parents died when I was a month shy of my 20th birthday, so I was 19, and living in Toronto, going to U of T, and I was living in residence, and they died in the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, and I was there with them uh, on vacation, so me and my parents went to Thailand for a vacation, um, and we were there when it happened. My brother, luckily, wasn't with us, so he was in Shanghai with his partner. Um, he was old, he's older, so he was no longer on the company, you know, bill. So my dad uh, was able to take me because I was, like, newly in college, like a year in, so... I guess I still counted as a dependent somewhat, so I was able to go with them. Um, So yeah, that's the event itself. So I was there with my parents and I survived, obviously, and they did not. Um, And yeah, I'm also very aware that it's like very easy for me to say the words and talk about it in a very like non-emotional way because I do a lot, you know, my, my work is in grief, um, educating and counseling. So I tell my story a lot. So it's easy for me in a certain way to, to talk about it, but not actually dropping into the, the emotional aspects of it. So, yeah. So that's, that's what happened. Um, And I would say that that was the giant loss that created lots of secondary losses as a result of it. So, you know, physically, yes, I lost both my parents, um, but what that also meant for me as a young person was I lost, you know, the guiding forces in my life. It meant I lost some stability in my life. It meant... Um, you know, that I lost my innocence in a lot of ways. Um, 
you know, the assumption that most of us have coming into the world that the world is a good place that's predictable and safe, like that was shattered for me. Um, so, you know, it's not just physically or emotionally losing someone you love, but the repercussions of it that happened as well. And also for me, I lost a lot of other family, um, not to death, but to estrangement. So for me, it wasn't just losing my parents, but it was over the next few years, losing a lot of family to that. So, you know, I say that because for some people who haven't had a loss, like a death loss, they think that it's just, oh, about losing that one person. Um, but it really is much more than that. Like there's a ripple effect for most people in their lives. And that's what I think makes it so hard to cope with is because you can't, you can't always know what those things are gonna be. And, you know, I didn't plan on being estranged from my family, right? So it's, that's I think often the tough parts. Not that it's not tough to lose the person, but the, the other losses that come along with it. Um, so my dad died when I was 15. He was in a, um, a house fire. Um, the result was suicide. Uh, so before he died, he had been really ill. So he was diagnosed as manic depressive. Um, and as a family, we struggled with his disease for a number of years um, with other suicide attempts. Uh, so, I was 15, my parents had been separated for um, just under a year, um, and my dad had just moved back to the town that we were living in, um, was going to school, uh, was doing really well in his life, so was on an upswing in his illness, which, when that was happening, life was really, was really great for everybody, um, including him. But unfortunately, it didn't last, so he, Things were going well, he was in school, he was seeing us regularly, um, us being the kids, my brother and I. Um, my mom and him seemed to have an okay relationship. Uh, I don't think that they were ever planning on getting back together, but they were at least getting along. Um, and then things kind of started to spiral as they had previously. Uh, so he started drinking again and then kind of started to disappear we heard he wasn't going to class. Um, and then I don't think I had any contact with him for a couple of months before he died. Um, as a kid, I was really good at, <coughs> excuse me, at um, freezing him out when he made me mad. Um, it's a skill I still have. <laughs> uh, so something had happened and I wish I could remember what the incident was, especially because it was the last time that I, that I talked to him. Um, so I hadn't talked talk to him in a couple of months. He would call the house um, and I just wouldn't, I just had no interest. Um, and then he went missing, missing, um, kind of fell off the radar. So nobody talked to him for a little while. And then one morning in July, my aunt woke us up and she, it was like five in the morning. And she said, we have to get up. We have to go to the hospital. Something's happened. And the... From what I had understood is that something had that my mom was in the hospital and that my dad had done something to her. And I remember on the car ride to the hospital, being 
very angry with him. Uh, and then getting to the hospital and realizing that he was the one who was sick, or who was injured. Uh, so he was airlifted, I mean, he was on life support at this point. Uh, he was airlifted from our small town to kind of a, a larger town. Uh, you know, he was there for four or five days. Um, the, nothing was happening. He had no brain function. 75% uh, of his body had been burned, so we had a decision to make of whether to leave him on life support uh, and see what happens, or take him off of life support and also kind of see what happens, but knowing what would happen, that he wouldn't be able to survive um, without the life support. Uh, it was a tough decision for us to make as a family. Um, looking back on it, I appreciate that my mom involved my brother and I in the decision, and it wasn't a decision that she just made herself. Uh, I think for me, it helps me to not feel so powerless in the whole loss. Um, so we made the decision to take him off life support and so it was gonna happen the following day and the doctor said, you know, it could take up to 12 hours for him uh, to die and they explained that he would be kept comfortable through um, drugs. Um, and then, so they told us what time it was happening and then I think Within 20 minutes, we got a phone call saying that he was gone. So it happened really quickly. Um, and it was kind of like, I, that moment was so surreal because it was the first time during, like from the moment that he was, we found out he was in the hospital to that moment where it really felt like time stood still. Because those days where we were just sitting around waiting kind of still felt it was, chaotic and there are people around and phone calls being made and you know trying to be distracted so we were kind of go 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 all the time and then in that moment it was just my mom and my brother and I in the house and it really did feel like the world kind of stopped moving. My mother was diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer. Uh, it would have happened in the spring of 2012, um, they gave her approximately six months to live at that particular point in time. I was living here in Toronto and my family is back in Philadelphia. So I traveled back and forth between here and the States quite often. Uh, to support her through that process. She was not interested in pursuing any form of uh, aggressive chemotherapy. Uh, she did receive radiation treatments. Um, it didn't do very much. And um, by the fall of that year, she was quite ill. Uh, she didn't want to be in a hospital. She wanted to die in her own home. So we gave her hospice care in her own bedroom, in her own home, which is the home that I was brought home from the hospital to. Um, I spent about three or four weeks in a leather lounger chair at the foot of her hospital bed in her bedroom. And uh, played records and 
fed her applesauce and turned her so she didn't get bed sores. And uh, she reached a point where um, she stabilized and uh, we weren't really sure. I had been there for probably about four weeks and we weren't really sure when she was gonna pass away. Uh, my birthday is November 1st. So after being there for about four weeks, um, I got to celebrate my 34th birthday with her and my family. And I went home on November 2nd, went home, came back to Toronto and uh, received a phone call on November 8th that she had passed away in her sleep. Um, yeah, I think, I think she waited for me to go. I think she didn't want to die in front of me. Um, I, I would have been the first person to find her. I was sleeping in, basically, in a chair in her room. Um, we had a very strong emotional, spiritual connection. We were very close. And, um, yeah, I miss her. It's hard for me to remember what the early days of grief were like because I think I was so in shock and like in a way emotionally frozen. I don't want to say denial because in lots of ways I knew the reality of my life, but there was a part of me that was insulated from the depth of the pain which I think is a natural response, especially because I had trauma involved. Um, so I feel like the early days are very fuzzy in my mind now. I don't really remember a lot. I was in school at the time and I was in theater school, so I feel like my memories of that time are mostly around theater school and my experiences there, but I think, you know, it was a, it's hard for a lot of people and myself included to know how to get back to life, right? I was living in residence, I was in theater school, had a tight-knit group of friends in residence and in theater school, and, you know, now that I think about it, why did I go back to school? Like that, but at that time, that was the only choice. It was to get back to my life which I think is, was a healthy thing for me. It was a distraction. I don't think I, was, I would have been ready to go back to nothing and start and just not be in school and not have a direction. Um, but now sometimes I, I, I realize, yeah, that wasn't like, why did I assume that that was what was supposed to happen? But it was what I assumed. So I did go back to school like a month later, which sometimes astounds me. Um, when I think about it. But that's what I needed to have some normalcy. And I think a lot of people feel that, like, you know, in the face of not knowing what to do and having, in the face of such profound loss and confusion, you just go back to what you know. So for sure that first few months, I think I was just on autopilot, just doing what I had to do. And then sort of five, six months in was when it started to affect me more. I remember very specifically having to go to Pia, the director of our program, 
to ask for an extension on an essay because I just couldn't focus on anything. And she was understanding and, you know, she said, I had an idea that this would happen, right? Like that it would, you know, the pin would drop months later. Um, and so I do remember, you know, it was mostly like six, five, six to like a year afterwards where it started to be really hard to be in school and I stopped having a full course load because it just was hard for me to concentrate. I remember, you know, trying to read my textbooks and sitting there and reading the same sentence five times and not even knowing what I was reading. So very much have having like cognitive symptoms. Um, and you know, I did, I was emotional at the time, but very privately and with like very few people. I think maybe my boyfriend at the time saw some of the pain, but I also feel like I, like I said, I was so frozen and in shock that I didn't really process a lot of the pain. Like initially, yes, there was a lot of crying in the first months, the first couple of months, but then once I was settled back into school and into daily life, the event was so physically far from where I was and in, in contextually so different that it was easier for me just to exist in the day to day and not be pulled into the emotions of it. And I think partly that was also my, my mind protecting me, right? Because you can't, like, you can't possibly, or no, like, I can't possibly have processed the depth of, you know, losing two people, going through such a traumatic thing, it, you know, in, in the months after, like, it's taken years. So, um, yeah, so the beginning was, was very fuzzy and, like I said, autopilot. And, but I still remember it being somewhat a joyful time. Like, especially the year after, I think it started to be hard a couple years in. And I, I remember like towards the end of my degree, that's when I tended to isolate a bit more and only spend time with very close friends. So it was sinking in more in some ways. I was, it was really isolating. I think when I think about my family and the way that we all grieved was so uniquely like my mom went one way um my mom has always been a there's nothing you can do about it you just need to keep going i mean looking back she was also a mom and now a single mom with two kids that she needed to raise and had to get back to work and but her my experience of her in grief is just nothing you can do just keep going um my brother and i didn't have a good relationship so I don't really know how he grieved. I don't even know if he ever did grieve. I mean, I'm not gonna speak for him, but from the outside looking in, it didn't feel like he was grieving, um, which made also then made me feel like I was doing something wrong, um, you know, because I was so destroyed or devastated by it. Um, and then it also went from, from that moment, how I talked about the world stood still to the world started moving again and I wasn't ready for it to. Uh, I was going into high school. So it was my first year of grade nine. So we died in July. I was going to high school in September. Uh, and I just remember thinking, like nobody at school wanted to talk to me about it, obviously, even though everybody knew 
I'm from a small town. Everybody knew what had happened. Uh, like even my coworkers at the time. Like I went back to work a week later to my part-time job and it just kind of, everybody avoided the subject completely. So I, yeah, I felt super, very isolated. Um, and then I think I've just figured that that's what I was supposed to do. That's what everybody else was doing was ignoring it. So I tried to do the same thing uh, pretty un unsuccessfully. And my perspective on life, I mean, I'm sure as a 15 year old, your perspective on life is changing naturally or normally. Um, and mine just seemed to, the things that were important to people my age just didn't seem important to me. Um, like studying for a test didn't seem, or like not getting the right grade or not having the right photo or it just didn't seem so important because I was like, hmm, you know, my dad's dead. So nothing else seemed to be of value or those things didn't seem to value, to be of value to me. Quite possibly the worst fear that I've ever had in life was uh, what would happen when my mother passed away. Um, so this was something that I obsessed over into adulthood. <laughs> um, I expected it to be devastating. Um, It was. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, on the plus side, uh, I don't think I've ever experienced a loss of that magnitude in my life, um, even still to this day. Um, and I know it's possible to recover from that loss, so that feels really good. In the beginning, I didn't see that. Um, what I saw was uh, an incredible amount of sadness. Um, uh, and an incredible amount of anger, which I did not expect. I was very angry. I was very, very, very angry and um, incapacitated. Um, I spent a lot of time um, in my bedroom um, self-medicating with drugs and alcohol and um, I uh, I lashed out at a lot of people whom I love and uh, my behavior became irrational and erratic and uh, physically and emotionally abusive. Um, I do not recognize the person that I became. Um, I made sounds that I have never heard another human being make and I would never want to hear. Uh, deep, guttural, wailing, falling apart, sobbing. Um, a friend of mine uh, explained that sound is called keening. Um, I didn't think it was possible for human beings to make that noise. Uh, I don't like to think about that part. It was really ugly. It was very ugly. I came from a family that never talked about grief. So to me, it was like not on my radar at all. I'd had, you know, my grandfather had died when I was in grade three and I saw my mom crying and that was the extent of it. I never got to go to his funeral. So I really wish that I had known 
that I'd been given some coping skills around it. I think we're really bad at doing that with kids because we're so scared to, you know, hurt them or we're so, we're so protective in some ways. And in, so the end result is that they have no coping skills for things like this, which, and you know, everyone's gonna deal with loss, you know, whether it's due to death or not. I mean, even with death, everyone's gonna deal with that. But with kids, you know, may, they might not deal with a death loss, but they will deal with loss. So I just, I wish that my parents had given me more tools around that. And I wish I had known, I wish I had known that it was a lifelong process which is now something that I've mostly come to terms with, that it's never going to be complete and that grief will always be part of my life. And, in, and you know, now I can see the beauty in that in some ways because it means that I still love them. But I think for sure there was a part of me in the early days that, you know, thought it was finite. Um, and I also wish that I knew earlier on that grief lives in my body because I didn't really know that the way I do now. So early on, um, you know, I did therapy and I was in support groups and stuff, which is definitely helpful, but I didn't really make the connection to how it lived in me physically. And now that I know that, I'm so much more conscious of how my body feels when I'm grieving and ways to let it out. And, you know, now I know it's not just about feeling sad or mad or angry or whatever the feelings are. It's also, it manifests for me in my body. So when I haven't been dealing with my grief, I feel low energy. I feel depressive. I feel like not moving. I feel... Like I don't want to be in my body because the minute I'm in my body, that's when feelings come up and I have to deal with them, right? But by, by dealing with them, you know, I, they don't get stuck. So I wish I had known that earlier. Um, but I also understand why I didn't know that because again, having been through the trauma of the event, my body was frozen. Like it was in a I guess like a holding pattern, you know, and just wanting to keep things in control and lockdown, right? So, you know, while I say these things that I wish I'd known this and I wish I'd known that, I do also believe that my grief process unfolded the only way it could have. Yeah. I wish I'd known that I was allowed to grieve. I think I wish I'd been, I, yeah, I wish I'd known that the emotions were allowed and that it was going to be hard. Um, I wish I had known that it wasn't something that was going to end. And not as in that it doesn't ever get easier, but that I just expected that one day, you know, after that first year, that it was like, oh, I'm done. I've done all the steps. You know, I was angry. I screwed this up whenever you, you it was over um and that just never happened so year one came to an end and I was like oh great now I get to do this again um and there was also that feeling like a failure because I wasn't getting over it or be, quote unquote getting over it uh 
Yeah, the, yeah. I've just been told that it should be, I'd assumed that it would end, that it would, that my life would go back to normal, quote, unquote, normal again. Um, and it never did. And I think that first year or that first five years would have been so much easier had somebody said, it's not going to be, oh, you know, you do everything once and you're done. It's not like getting your driver's license. You read the book, you take the test, and then you're done. They tell you about the stages of grief, and they tell you about, you know, uh, I mean, anger is included in that, and denial is included in that, and there's all these these supposed stages, but it's, it's non-linear. Um, and you don't necessarily follow those patterns in order. Um, you jump around at any given moment, and they often repeat, and it's non-hierarchical. Like, you don't move through it and come out the other side um, in any sort of predictable way. Uh, it's, a, it's more like a spiral <laughs> or a wave. Um, and uh, it doesn't really change. Um, in my experience, those emotions never go away. You just learn how to function carrying those emotions with you. Um, yeah. I don't miss her any less than I did the day she passed away. Um, I sometimes have moments in life now where I'll be depressed or anxious or angry or any number of emotions. And um, there won't be any logical trigger for why I feel the way I feel. And if I spend enough time like that, eventually the thought creeps into my head, oh, I'm grieving still. Um, and that can be really frustrating. <laughs> that can be really frustrating. Um, I think, uh, I think we're conditioned to, uh, to assume that you'll get over things in a reasonable amount of time and that there's a certain, uh, benchmark for when those sorts of things are meant to happen. Uh, and it doesn't really work like that. I wish somebody had told me that it doesn't doesn't really look like that. Uh, I think I would tell my newly grieving self that it's okay to make noise. <laughs> I think I didn't understand how powerful wailing could be. And, you know, it's my personality and the way I grew, grew up was to be small and quiet and, and, you know, not to take up space. So, you know, it was ingrained in me not to take up space. So, but now through my process, 
having done a lot of work in spaces where I can release in big ways, physically and with sound, I realize how helpful that is because, you know, that's why in so many cultures, people wail and they keen and I don't know where it is. If I think it's in Spain where at funerals people hire people to wail and keen and, and there is a therapeutic part to that. Like I think because we're animals, we need to express those parts of ourselves. But because we live in such a sanitized, you know, environment where emotions are bad and you're not supposed to make noise and it's too raw for people to to be able to feel comfortable with, right? So we tend to lock that stuff down and I think that's so dangerous because, yeah, there's a, there is a huge part of us that's an animal and needs to let those sounds out and let, you know, that stuff out. And, you know, of course, this is my own opinion, so not everyone would feel comfortable doing that. But I wish I had known, even if it meant that I was crying alone at my house, that I could make sound, because I really don't think I did. Like, it was very rare that I would actually let myself cry by myself to the point where I was sobbing or something. It was very quiet. So I wish that I had known that that was okay. It's very cliche to say it gets better. Um, you know, but it does. Uh, I think a combination of it gets better, but also like it's never going away. Because I think had I, had I had the idea that it was something I was going to have to learn to live with, I think I could have focused on A, allowing myself to grieve, but then also not having that hope that one day I would just never hurt again. Well, for me, in my grief, my two worst fears in life came true. I lost my mother, and I became my father. My father was alcoholic and abusive for most of my childhood and adolescence. And, uh, yeah. I repeated a lot of the same patterns that I saw in my, my childhood. So if I had to impart any sort of wisdom to my younger grieving self um, I don't know I mean, part of me wants to tell myself to warn me that that is possible um, but there's an incredible amount of uh, strength and resilience going through something like that and I mean, my life is completely different today than it was. Uh, even having gone through like deep, like, like deep addiction um, to drugs and alcohol, being in recovery at this particular point in time, um, acknowledging that you know, the, the disease of addiction, the disease of like uh, interspousal violence is like, um, it's a family disease and I carry a lot of those traits with me. Um, being like super keenly aware um, that it's possible for me to become that person helps me not be that person and have a much, much better quality of life now than I probably
probably ever would have had had I not experienced those things. So, I mean, it's hard to look at. It would be, inc I have a deep amount of compassion for my younger grieving self and I would want to take a lot of that pain away and a lot of those experiences away. But uh, I'm extremely grateful that I feel like a much better person having gone through it. As terrible as that is to, I wouldn't wish that, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but yeah. Um, so I, in lots of ways, I spent a lot of time grieving in a way that was really cerebral. So I can talk and analyze anything to death. So for all, oh, haha, death. Um, so for like the first six, seven years of my process, maybe even a little more, it was a lot of going to a therapist and talking about the issue, being in a support group and talking about the issue. And yes, there were little bits of emotion in there, but mostly it was analyzing what was happening in my life, analyzing my grief. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it only gets me to a certain point in processing, right? So I think early days very much because I wasn't ready to process emotionally. It was very much about talking about it. It was very cognitive about understanding what was happening. Um, but now for me, it's much more physical and emotional. So for me, I know when I haven't been doing my grief work because I get angry, I pick fights with Alex, you know, and I stop being in my body, like I said before. Um, I start to feel low energy. So now it, it manifests much more in that way. And so my way to deal with it is to get more in my body, is to exercise more, you know, to bike more. Because um, then I can also get more in touch with my feelings, right? Because I'm more in touch with my breath. And, um, and so now it's, it's more about being in my body so that I can access those deep, deep feelings that I'm so good at pushing away <laughs> and compartmentalizing. Um, and I also think for me, I do cope with grief spiritually. I've never been a religious person, but I think through my grief process, I have become a much more spiritual person. So I think a lot about my purpose in the world. I think a lot about you know the meaning of my life. Um, and so a big part of my coping style is the fact that I am a grief counselor and I educate about grief, right? It's my way of making meaning from my loss. So I think that's a huge part of how I cope. And obviously I have to do it carefully because if I'm sitting day in and day out listening to people's stories, it does affect me. So I have to be very careful about taking care of myself. But ultimately, there's nothing, in this moment, there's nothing better for me than talking to a group of people who, before meeting me or before being in that specific group, never having a place to talk about their grief and then leaving that workshop or leaving that group feeling like they've been held and feeling like they've been heard. Like there's nothing that gives me more of a high than that. I actually had a workshop earlier this week and it was a small group. It was like five people and me and, but they all participated. They all told their stories and 
you know, we all left feeling like, oh, we're not alone, and, and there's some silver lining, there's some hope. And so that really, for me, is, is a huge part of my coping, is to be able to do some good out of the sadness and, you know, the tragedy of it, um, to, to have some sort of meaning come from that. Um, I've always said I'm a mental graver. <clears throat> uh, because after my dad died, for me, it was a lot of needing to understand the how and the why. Um, so a lot of reading around mental illness and the options for treatment and yeah, so a lot of needing to really understand why he was sick and how he was sick and why what he did, why he did what he did um, in order for me to to be able to actually get to the emotions or to the to the next, um, I don't want to say step, but to the next, yeah, just to, to move forward through my grief process, I needed to actually really comprehend, so to get, move out of the shock of him dying into he's actually dead, I needed to understand the who, what, when, where, and how. Um, and I did a lot of uh, reading on about mental illness, which was probably odd for a 15-year-old to be doing. Um, yeah, so mental is what I thought I was, and now as I've, as I've gotten older, I definitely feel like I'm more in the physical and emotional, because I feel grief in my emotions and then in my body if I'm ignoring those emotions. Like my anxiety gets worse if I am avoiding dealing with my emotions. Um, so for years, I struggled with an anxiety disorder and, you know, tried all kinds of, of different options, medication, therapy, etc., etc., and learned that if I didn't deal with my emotions as they bubbled up, um, that it had a negative impact on the way I felt anxiety in my body. But then also around the physical part, you know, if I don't, if exercise isn't a part of my life, my anxiety also um, creeps up on me. So while as a teenager, I definitely went in my head to try and figure out how to deal with his loss, um, I've learned that you need to move through kind of all of them. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in my head and then probably also as a teenager, having gone to a Catholic school, the spiritual side was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about or working on, having grown up Catholic, and also having, having been given the op opportunity to, in a religion class, talk about my relationship with God and how it's changed over the years, and then be able to include my loss in those conversations was helpful. Um, and then the last part that came to me was dealing with the physical and emotional side many years later. In general, I like to think of myself as being a fairly empathic person, so it often gets difficult for me to experience really strong emotions around other people or, um, or to be around other people when I'm experiencing very strong emotions. Um, I like to be left alone because I am very much aware that I personally absorb other people's emotional energy and uh, I did not want to do that to anyone else in my life, so I 
pretty much drew the shutters and withdrew. Um, there were a, a select few um, people that I really um, depended on in that particular period of my life, but for the most part, I, I, I withdrew. So, um, I'm certainly on the emotional side of things. Um, I'm certainly on the emotional side of things. I think, uh, too, um, I never really, um, for most of my life, I never really considered what God meant. Uh, for myself or for other people. Um, I respected uh, spirituality in a sort of broad general sense um, and had a healthy suspicion of organized religion. Um, I, to this day, don't ascribe to anyone's spiritual or religious doctrine. Um, my relationship with, you know, a loving spirit of the universe is very individual in particular to myself. Um, discovering that and um, coming to trust in that has certainly been a like key part of my personal journey in recovering and continuing to recover from the experience of, of loss that my mother's death um, kicked off in my life. So I think I've been really lucky, um, you know, in lots of ways I'm not lucky. I lost my parents young, you know, I didn't have people guiding me or supporting me through the, my early adulthood, which was hard, but I was so lucky that I didn't have to really worry about money. You know, where I am in my grief process, I owe a lot to the fact that my parents worked really hard and left us money and, you know, I was comfortable that way. I think for sure being Chinese and being a woman has affected how my expectations of myself about how I was supposed to grieve. You know, like I said before about how I wasn't supposed to take up space. It is still really hard for me to take up space. I'm better than I was before, but, you know, in general, the world doesn't make space for grief for anybody. And then let alone for someone, you know, an Asian lady who's supposed to be quiet and not make waves and you know, be quiet and nice in the corner, right? So I think that for sure impacted my own expectations and other people's expectations of, you know, how I was supposed to grieve. Um, yeah, I mean, I also think that I, because of finances, I've been so lucky to have education that I can make meaning from my loss by becoming a social worker and becoming a therapist and a counselor, like not everyone can do that, right? So I feel really lucky that way too. Yeah, so I feel like, you know, there's some challenges because of who I am, but mostly I've had a lot of privilege um, in my grief experience.
you know, after he died, um, I, my social location was I had a single mom. I don't know that she made a whole lot of money, um, you know, so she had to go back to work. Um, money was something that we worried about. I lived in a small town. We didn't have access to a lot of resources. And the resources that were there, we couldn't afford. Um, so growing up, it did definitely, my social location impacted my ability to access support. There wasn't a support groups for bereaved children. Um, in the town that I was from, uh, therapy wasn't something that we could afford um, or was available to us. Um, and even when I think about books, it's not like I, I came from a family where my mom took us to the bookstore and I could buy books, but the books I was reading I was having to get from the library and being in a small town, the, my access to current um, authors was limited. Uh, so I, I think that it, it definitely slowed down my ability to, I think, had I been given the opportunity to access other resources, I think it, I'm not saying that I would have grieved more quickly, but I would have had access to tools more quickly to help me um, either learn to grieve in a healthier manner or just have a better understanding of what I was going through. Regardless of how I personally identify uh, gender or sexual orientation, I, I read to the outside world as being a black man. Um, and there is a very particular way um, that um, that particular identity um, is denied access to, uh, to grief, I think, in particular. Uh, sadness, loss, um, expression of emotion, expression of deep emotion, expression of deep hurt. Um, one of the ways I had that was readily culturally accessible for me to express my grief was through anger. Um, and uh, often my expression of grief um, through anger wasn't read as grief. It was read as hostility or violence, um, which is actually quite dangerous for all people <laughs> involved. Um, I think there are a lot of grieving people, grieving black people, um, men, women, queer, trans, non-binary. There are a lot of grieving people um, who aren't necessarily given permission to grieve in a way that is uh, as sensitive or considerate or at all, yeah. I didn't always know this because grief is such a painful thing to have to express, especially for me in front of other people, but that's where the healing is. You know, I, can, I could grieve forever by myself, but that might not, I might get stuck in that, but I, I really feel that the healing happens when other people can support you through it and you can be vulnerable in front of other people and let them in. And that's been a hard lesson for me, but it's been so helpful when I, 
when I let people in, when I can actually just say, you know, I'm having a hard day, can you come and sit with me? Or, you know, I had on, on the 10th anniversary of my parents' death in the tsunami, I had a memorial, which was a big deal for me because I, at the funeral, I think only one or two friends came because it was, I don't know why only one or two friends came, but because I had a lot of friends, but it just worked out that way and I, it felt uncomfortable to have more. So the, the 10th anniversary memorial was a big deal because it was the first time that I actually allowed my friends in in a certain way to say like this is I'm creating this event that's for me and about me in a lot of ways and I want you here to witness that that was a big deal and I and what I got from that was tremendous like it was way more than I could have imagined um, and I really feel like doing that was so healing in so many ways that like sitting in a room talking to someone for an hour in therapy would never do. Not that that's not useful, but it was like tenfold, right? So I think for me really it's what's been helpful is letting myself be vulnerable in the pain, which is still hard for me. Like it's, you know, it's, I have my grief friends that I'm, that I more easily do that with, friends that, you know, have also had losses, so they get it from the inside. It's easier for me to, to be vulnerable around grief with them. But it's still a constant intention of mine to involve other people who might not be one of those grief friends who I may, might not usually let in so much. And I'm trying very hard to, to let those people in because as hard as it is in the moment ultimately it's the truth of my experience and there's a lot of healing that comes from it and connection so yeah for me definitely it's the letting myself be vulnerable has been the most helpful I don't know that it's any one thing that's been helpful I mean because the thing that worked for me Last year may not work for me this year. So, for example, for a long time, um, the anniversary of my dad's passing, I took off from work and made it kind of a day that I didn't have to do anything. Um, and I mean, that did work. Um, although I learned as I went along that it wasn't the actual anniversary that was a the hardest part for me, it was the week leading up to the anniversary that was the most challenging. So while I thought taking the day off was helpful and may have been at the beginning, um, now it's like I'd rather take the days leading up to the anniversary off because once I, we get to that, once I get to that day, um, it's almost like a sense of relief of like, oh, okay, that's actually not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So while it may have been taking a day off was helpful, it may not be now. <clears throat> um, I mean, it's helpful when it's acknowledged. Uh, like it's nice to hear from friends and or family on an anniversary. Um, and it doesn't have to be, and it's for me preferable that it's not a big long conversation or a how are you doing, but just a, 
hey, I'm thinking about you today uh, to help me f remember that I'm not alone and that there are people there that, that remember him as well. Small acts of direct kindness make a huge difference. Um, I'm not generally a person who likes to ask for help. And um, I am often, you know, people grow up with different communication styles and I often communicate my wants indirectly. <laughs> I'm one of those people where if you love me and you know me well enough, you should be able to, don't you know what I want? You should be able to read my mind. And uh, I have since uh, had to make some adjustments in those, uh, in those communication styles uh, and become a much more direct communicator than that. Um, you know, again, part of the process of learning. When I was in the absolute, like, pit of grief um, and fairly incapable of communicating much of anything, it was extremely helpful for people to just do very small, direct acts of service, bring me food, um, take me for a walk, get me out of my house. Your entire worldview just ends up being so blighted that um, they're never really... You just forget to do some really basic things. <laughs> so it's helpful just to have somebody around you. Um, will help cover the basics. What's not helpful are the people who are very uncomfortable with death and you can feel it a mile away and they refuse to talk about it. Like I have a couple of friends, not close friends, but I do have a couple of friends who to this day, which you know now we're at almost 12 years later, who still have never said anything to me directly about my loss and I get that it's their stuff and it's about their discomfort, but it's very invalidating. And, you know, there is a part of me that's compassionate and knows that they can't, they just don't have that capacity in this moment. But there's a young part of me that is like, that feels abandoned by them and feels like, don't, doesn't my experience matter? You know, all of my experience, not just the shiny, happy parts. So it's really unhelpful for me, you know, also seeing other friends go through losses when people step on eggshells, you know, tiptoe around because they're so uncomfortable. They can't, e they can't even just say, I'm so sorry. Or they can't even say, like, I don't know what to say. You know, and again, I have compassion for that, but I know how unhelpful that can be. Because as a grieving person, most of the time, I think you just want to know that you're not alone and that, you, or that you're not alone in the experience. Like, yes, no one can fix it and no one can take the pain away, but people can love you through it and, you know, 
be there to walk with you, right? And just to make it less lonely. So, you know, I'm not asking for someone to take the pain away. I just want them to sit with me and like be able to sit in the silence or sit in the questions and just be with me in it. So it's unhelpful when people can't do that. What hasn't been helpful? It's probably a longer list. Uh, advice giving is the worst. I, it's, I just can't. Um, one story was, yeah, so advice giving, but then also people who were surprised that it's something that I still struggle with. I had a boss once. I, had to, I asked for the day off and she asked me what I was doing and I explained that it was um, you know, the anniversary of my dad's passing. And her response was, oh, oh, you still struggle with that? And I remember just kind of being taken aback by it and thinking, oh, I didn't realize that, that there was um, an expiry date on, on how long I'm allowed to, you know, miss the fact or grieve the fact that my, I've lost my father. Um, yeah. So advice giving and or somebody putting parameters on what my grief should look like. Because we all grieve differently, other folks who have experienced grief, I find they fall into two camps. There are people who, because they know what loss is like, will give you space to feel whatever it is that you're feeling and express whatever you need to express without any pressure or without any assumptions. And then there are other people who <laughs> um, will focus more on their own experience and then tell you what they think you should be feeling. I find that supremely unhelpful. Um, yeah, there's a, I understand that folks are trying to, uh, to ease other people's suffering when they do things like that. But there's just a real sort of a, I don't know, uh, there's a real rebellious streak in a lot of people, I think, who are experiencing that kind of loss. Like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna hear what you have to say to me if you're gonna tell me what I need to, don't tell me what I feel, don't tell me, yeah, just, you should know better. <laughs> uh, I find that very unhelpful. I think it's given me a lot of gifts and some days I'm okay with that and some days it really pisses me off actually. So, you know, I think the obvious gifts are that now I know my meaning and purpose in life, so it gave me direction in life. It definitely made me realize how precious life is and try to live life to its fullest. Although, you know, like everyone else, some days I fail. Um, so in those ways, it's been a gift. And I think it's been a huge gift for my community, my community, because now I know how to deal with loss. So now when I have friends who have loss, I am usually the person who's not afraid to talk about it and will support them and won't shy away 
but we'll give them space. And, you know, I'm, I have so much more comfort in navigating that. So I feel like that's more of a gift for other people, I guess. But it is a gift for me because I know in some ways, again, that something good has come out of something bad. But some days I don't want the gifts. You know, some days it pisses me off that I didn't get the support I need and I was in such a sad place and, you know, all those things, right? And some days those gifts feel really hard won and some days I don't want them. You know, I would trade them. So it's a hard thing to reconcile with myself because yes, there are gifts, but the gifts came at a really big expense, right? They came at the cost of people's lives. So I feel like, yeah, I have had a lot of gifts from it and sometimes the gifts feel like a curse, right? So that's hard for me to reconcile sometimes. And, you know, I've become better at holding two very different things at once. You know, it can at one time be very horrible that I had to experience this and at, you know, the same time there are gifts, right? So I'm, things are less black and white and, you know, not everything is dichotomy and, you know, I can, I can hold two very disparate different things at once. Um, what other gifts? I really think that I would be a totally different person now so and I really like my life now and I for the most part like who I am and like who's in my life and like where I am and where I'm going in my life so it's given me the gift of that um, but it's also given me the gifts of like paranoia and <laughs> I'm a control freak and you know lots of other things that aren't so great which I guess aren't gifts but you know in some ways they are but you know, my house is very neat and I get shit done because I'm a control freak. <laughs> but all, you know, those things also get in the way of relationships and, and being in my life. So it's not all good things that I've gotten, but I have, I think, received a lot of good things. And I'm aware that some days I don't think that at all. So it changes. So I think for years after he died, there wasn't, I didn't actually ever think that I would get to a point where I could be asked the question, like, what gifts um, did I get from it? And it's still a question I kind of struggle with because it puts me in a position of almost having to be okay with the fact that I've lost him or that he died. And there are moments in my life where I'm very grateful for the life that I have. Um, and I always end up back at that point of, yes, there are the gifts, but to, and I'm grateful for them, but it always makes me feel guilty about being grateful for something because it makes me feel like I'm grateful for the fact that he's dead, even though I know that's not actually how I feel or how it would be interpreted. Um, but I am, I mean, that my life, there are so many things in my life that I am grateful for that I think I wouldn't have if he was still alive. Um, many of my friends, um, for example, um, I seem to have stumbled upon um, a circle of friends who also 
I've lost a parent, and I think that that shared loss experience has brought me closer to those people. Um, and then I've, I, I've also learned a lot. Like I had the, I was lucky enough to have found an organization where I could do some volunteer work around grief. Um, and I learned a lot about myself and my grief experience and also about connecting to other people. I live my life more fully. Um, I have a stronger sense of Am I really gonna say this? Yeah, I have a stronger sense of purpose. Um, I think I am a kinder person and a more compassionate person. Maybe I'm actually not a kinder person, but I, I certainly feel like I'm a more compassionate person. I don't think the two necessarily have to go hand in hand. Um, compassion in the sense that like, uh, because I have struggled so profoundly and continue to struggle um, with anger in particular. Uh, when I experience strong negative emotions radiating off another human being, I don't immediately just assume that they are, for lack of a better word, an ass. Like, there's something else going on there. Um, yeah. What other gifts? Living life more fully as per and um, being more committed and dedicated to uh, the experiences that my life still has to offer. Um, I think I got a little. Yeah, there's something about being caught up in like feeling a little bit like aimless. Um, I don't necessarily feel that way today. My relationship with them is something that I struggle with because my relationship with them when they were alive was not a close one in lots of ways because of the way my family was. Um, and not all Chinese families are like this, but a lot of them are. Where you play a role in the family. You're the kid, you're the daughter, you're whatever, and that's the role you play. It's less, the relationship is less about them getting to know you as a person and, and vice versa. So I didn't really feel like they really knew me. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have heart-to-heart -heart conversations with them. My friends knew me. Those were the people that I that I went to. So when I, when they died, and because I was a teenager, you know, starting to form my own identity and rebel a little bit, and you know, there was those issues going on, I really, when they died, I was really at a place where I really felt they didn't know me, they didn't understand me. So there was a distance. And so now I want to have one, Obviously, it cannot be the same kind of relationship as when they died, but I almost don't know how to have one because I didn't have a close relationship and then there's been a gap, right? So I've, thought, I've been thinking a lot more about this in the last year or so of like, how do I have a relationship? Like, I know some people talk to the dead person. I've never done that. Like, to me, that's strange. It's a huge leap. 
you know, I mean, I have lots of, like I have pictures of them around the house. I have some of their furniture. I have some of my mom's clothes. I have, you know, have some sweaters of my dad. So I have a lot of, you know, what we call in the grief world, linking objects. But on a day-to-day -day sort of intimate relating level, that's still really hard for me. You know, I know people who, you know, they talk to their parents or their, you know, who is, who's deceased, they, they pray to them or they, you know, feel in their heart and send a wish to them. Like that kind of stuff, which is much more intimate and emotional, that stuff is hard for me. So that happens way less. Um, and I still don't really, I still don't have a ritual around the anniversary. So I'm very conscious that that's probably part of the process for me. Um, so that's, you know, that's something that's always gonna change and, and over time it will change. But for sure, I, I feel more connected to my mother than I do to my father. And again, in real life, when I was 19 and, and younger, I always did feel more connected to my mother. And so as I'm aging as a woman and reaching different milestones, I understand her in a different way. You know, now that I'm in, you know, I'm very well could have a child in the next few years, that makes me think about her in a totally different way and, you know, things like that. So I, I in that way, I, I'm always relating to them and always thinking, oh, that's, those were the kinds of pressures they were dealing with at the time or that's part of what their reality was like and so and so, but yeah. So it's much more of a, my relationship with them is, is less emotional, I guess. There's definitely an ongoing dialogue with him um, that is sometimes stronger than, than other times. Uh, there are times in my life where I talk to him every day, and then there are times when, you know, it'll be a month. I wouldn't say that there's ever a day that goes by that I don't think about him. Um, for a long time after he died, I didn't have any kind of relationship with him because there was a lot of anger um, around him being dead. So it was like, that's fine, you want to be gone, then you can be gone. Uh, and I did really cut him out of my life. Um, but at some point that, that started to fall away. Um, yeah, it's mostly through a dialogue that I have with him in my head where if something good is happening, I can talk to him about it. And then also if something bad is happening, it's like, can you please tell me what to do right now? Like send some kind of sign or smoke signal or anything to tell me what to do. Um, I don't visit the cemetery where he's buried, uh, mostly because of geography and when I am home, uh, it's the middle of winter and there's a lot of snow. <clears throat> uh, but I also feel like he's not there. Like the only thing that is at the cemetery are his ashes, which I don't have a great connection to. Um, so it's definitely more of a spiritual in my head or in my heart um, relationship than having to go somewhere to talk to him. Um, I can't even say that I have 
I don't have any of his belongings. So I'm not connected to him. For me, there's no connection in wearing something that was his or um, having something. So yeah, so there's nothing that I have of his that I have on an altar or that I hold when I feel I'm trying to connect with him. But it's mostly in my head and heart, I guess. I talk to my mommy all the time. Uh, uh, yeah, we're just a few days off from the anniversary of her passing. Um, I don't have any particular rituals um, around that. Uh, there's just a general sense of, there's a, a heightened emotional agitation that happens during this particular period of time for me, um, or at least it has over the past few years. Um, and the best way I can describe it is that she just feels much closer. Um, it's like, uh, I don't know if it has to do with my own particular like spiritual or religious background or just being a generally kind of woo witchy person, but um, the veil just feels a lot thinner around this time. And uh, I don't necessarily get direct communications, but I, I, I do feel more, more anxious, more agitated, more energized, more uh, like something is constantly just whispering just on the periphery of my understanding. Uh, yeah. So that's fun. <laughs> but I talk to her every day. Uh, I have a necklace, I have a pendant uh, that I wear every day that has a, a portrait of her face. Um, and uh, yeah, I just talk to her. My parents had Chinese and English names, so my dad, um, his English name was Ted, Ted Kwan. My mom's English name was Cecilia, and her maiden name was Pong, so Cecilia Pong, but she took my dad's name, so Cecilia Kwan. And in Cantonese, my dad's name was Guan Jin Dat, and my mom's Chinese or Cantonese name was yeah, and they've died when they were, I think, my dad was 53 and my mom was 51, I think. So, it was really, they were really young. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my dad's name was Jill. My mother's name is I Irene Loretta Spain. She was born in 1940, and she passed away when she was 72.
This episode's contributing voices were Andrea Warren, Jill Lavigne, and Chai Ryan Spain. The music was composed and produced, as always, by Ron Kelly. The episode was very much facilitated and co-produced by Andrea Warren. For further information about her grief counseling and education services, visit andreacorn.com.